Hi, this is Peter Francho, your state comptroller in Maryland. You're listening to the Conduit Street Podcast, the official podcast of the Maryland Association of Counties. Hello and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Kevin. Glad to be back. Glad to have you back. Natasha did a fantastic job, as always, last week, but always glad to ba- have you back in the chair. I know. I had a little bit of FOMO, i got to be honest. I'm sure you did. We, <laughs> we, we certainly missed you. But today on the podcast, we're going to talk about what is on Marylanders' minds. We'll break down the books and we'll talk about Kerwin, both process and substance, Michael, let's first get into the Goucher poll. This is always something that I really look forward to. The Goucher poll is conducted by Malia Cromer. She runs the poll. This is from Goucher College. And what are your thoughts about this poll? I know you look forward to it as well. Sure. I think I think everybody in politics and policy does. It's good to have a polling outfit in the state. So, I mean, we're used to we're used to getting input from national polls and you read things from the big, you know, big newspapers and stuff like that. But but Goucher College does this, you know, this this effort um, and and Professor Cromer gets her students together and they all gear up and bear down and make all these phone calls and lead people through. So that I mean, it's a learning experience for them. But what we come away with is this big snapshot. And it's not just three or four big, clumsy, obvious questions. Right. It's it's sort of a meandering, you know, what are your priorities? What are you thinking about? What do you think about this issue of the day? Things out of the headlines. Looks at political leaders and what are you thinking about at the national level, at the state and local level and so forth. And then there's always a few sort of punchy, humorous things tossed in there too. And I like that as well. Right. So you can look at the poll as a whole online at Goucher College Poll. But we went through, we've looked through all of these these poll questions, Michael, and the results, and we've picked out a few things that we think are really interesting. So first of all, for context, this poll was about 763 adults. It ran from September 13th through the 18th, has a margin of error of 3.6%. We have to point that out because we're poll nerds, right? Yes. And I mean, so, and, and there are always people, like every time there's a poll or something of that nature, there's going to be the response from somebody who says, well, no one called me. Right. So how can this be valid? How can you only talk to a few hundred people? And let's see, let's take what could be a 20 minute segment and just say math, so basically the precision of a poll is a function of how many people you talk to and how good you are at randomizing the people you reach. Uh, we know they do a good job and this is a reliable instrument so people can take it at reasonable value. You have an error rate because you've only talked to hundreds of people, right, but right. you have a 95% certainty that it's within a few percent of being right. So that's fine. Like run with this. The, the old, the old saying, I guess is, you know, you don't need to eat the entire bowl of soup to know whether it's too salty, just stir it up and have one spoonful, you know? That's right. And you can, that, that's a great analogy. And I do want to say too, there is this misconception that, you know, the polls only only reach people via their work or home phone numbers, which means landlines. And I have to say, and I know Professor Cromer will love this, that is not We're not doing true. that anymore, right? Yes. 80% of the interviewees in this poll were done by cell phone. So 
If you think that way, please, please, right. please ditch that logic because it's just not true. It's just like it, it's one of those enduring like urban legend stories. You know, the people who bring home the pet dog and it's really a rat. It's the same kind of thing. People walk around thinking polls are just being done by people who have these wall mounted telephones. No, we're past that. These are modern reach out. And it's, it's, it's fine. OK, so good poll makes sense. Let's see what's in there. OK, so the big headline here, obviously, as is always the big headline, it seems, in everything Maryland lately, is education funding. So no surprise, and we're going to start there. So, Michael, about 70% of Maryland adults in this poll thinks that the state spends too little on education. 19% say we we spend just the right amount. 6% say we spend too too little. Or, or too much. So, um, so as a as a practical matter here, this is a tricky question, right? With with no without context, context right? And that and that's that, so. This is the running issue with with any polling is and 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 uh, you know Goucher does a good job. You can break out the cross tabs and you can see exactly how the questions were phrased and so forth, but. In the absence of any context at all, do people are people inclined to say, you know what, I'm for education, so sure, I think it ought to get more. I think that's it's sure, a reasonable it's conclusion for an awful lot of people. Uh, they went deeper, and I think that's a good thing. But the context is always important here. I mean, this was following a question, which was words to the effect of what what what's the number one issue on your mind? Right. And you get a scattering of public safety and education and environment and, you know, a sort of Some clean government issues, and other right. things like that, that sort of thing. And education was, I think the top of that list, but not a dominating leader. Right. It was education followed closely by public safety. If I right. recall, yeah, no, no right. surprise. So, and, and yeah, no surprise that these are the biggest things in County budgets. These are among the biggest things in state budgets. So, so, I mean, the public sector is on the right track trying to deliver things that people care most about. All right, no surprise there. Right. But so people's support for funding for education, mark that down as interesting, and then it leads into another question. Right. So the big takeaway, the biggest headline was that 74% of those surveyed said they would be willing to personally spend more. Right. And personally, that word personally is in the question. It is. In the That's question they had. Right. You personally willing to pay more in taxes. Right. To pay more in taxes to improve schools. Now, let's put that into context. First of all, I don't think anybody wants to pay more in taxes regardless of what kind of services it would improve. That's the first thing. Second, Michael, is what does pay more in taxes really mean? I mean, that's really up for debate, right? It could mean $1. It could mean thousands of dollars. Right. Break that down. How can you? I mean, that's really the short version here sure. is I think it's a responsibly phrased question. And the introduction of that word personally, I think, was savvy. Mm-hmm. So that that tends to make like it's not just in the abstract, like maybe some some billionaires are going to pay more taxes or corporations are going to pay more taxes or your neighbor pays more taxes. Are you personally willing to pay more for education? Still, people hung in there Mm -hmm. and said yes. So I think that's an important takeaway, even if it doesn't tell you maybe that is a broad support, but you don't know how deep it is. Exactly. And and maybe it's I'll, I'll pay more if it's for the school down my street. Oh, right, right. right. But if yeah. it's for other schools around the state, I'm not re- really willing to do that. So besides the amount that you're willing to pay, it also may depend on you're thinking about, well, little Billy's elementary school right down the street. I'd like to see that school improve. Right. And and, and who knows? I mean, that's, you know, the improvement in schools is going to take its own. What does that mean to you? What does that mean to a different voter or a right. different respondent to a poll? Uh, those are interesting questions. There's only so much you can get to here. 
So there's no doubt that education advocates are delighted to see a big, robust number of Marylanders respond, I'm willing to pay more taxes for better schools. Sure. And and no surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I We've already seen some pushback from sort of the, you know, the, the usual suspects uh, of saying, well, what do you mean by more taxes? Like people, people said they'd be willing to pay another penny or another dollar. What about a hundred? What about a thousand? What about 6,000? You know, at what point does that high percentage start to dilute as you get into the details, both on the money and the where does it go? Right. And notably, I mean, we're talking about Kerwin. This all has to do with Kerwin. 77% of respondents knew nothing about the Kerwin Commission or the work it's doing. So, okay, now we know that Conduit Street podcast listeners would fare better, but still, uh, that should be a surprising number to people who are policy nerds. And you know who you are out there, our friends and us. Right. But everybody thinks that the whole state is sitting on pins and needles waiting for every every action of the Kerwin Commission, when in fact, if you run into nine people at the supermarket, seven of them have absolutely no idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, and that's important. <laughs> I mean, we live in a vacuum here and we all think, you know, everybody's in our orbit, but it's it's always nice to remember that, hey, most people have no idea what this means, even though that we cover it. And I think it's super, super important. Most people have no idea what Kerwin means. Which fits with things that we've already been seeing in the Maryland media mm-hmm. that we're, we're starting to see a media presence on this issue um, to some degree from both sides, right. but in social media, in mass media, uh, I've seen advertisements on TV, um, on the one TV show that I watch live with regularity. It ends with an exclamation point. Mm-hmm. You have to answer the questions and phrase of a question. Anyway, um, I've started to see ads supporting this big investment in schools. They the talk blueprint. about the, talk about the blueprint. Right. They use that word right. rather than Kerwin. I think that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but blueprint is a, I'm sure, you know, I think blueprint's a good word. Absolutely. Right? I'm sure that that, that works well in a focus group. So, so it's a blueprint and that's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, but anticipate here and more in an effort to change that 77% number. Okay, let's jump into the economy quickly. 60% of respondents held a mostly positive view of the state economy. 29% held a mostly negative view. One in four said they expect the state's economy will continue to improve in the future. Michael, anything significant to you there? Um, There's no reason to expect the general public to be experts on the economy. So to some degree, these questions are get really close. In my opinion, these questions are almost a proxy for generic approval rating. And we'll get into specific approval ratings. But to me, like, what do you think about the economy? Not many people think that the Maryland economy is on a really different track than the United States economy. Yeah, that's important. Right. So, and, and, you know, even though the, 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 the responses here vary a little bit, there's, there's no reason to think that Maryland is an outlier. We're doing way better or way worse than the rest of the country. So some people are probably thinking about, I'm thinking about tariffs or I'm thinking about unemployment or I'm thinking about one particular thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's all I have in mind when I think about the economy. You're looking at the national you know, picture. Not many people are breaking down you know, in the way that our, you know, Bureau of Revenue Estimates has to. We're going to be talking about them in a minute. You know, very few people are sitting around with the data. Right. So you ask people, how's the economy? Most people look around, they're like, seems okay. And, and, you know, you said that 
these questions tend to be a proxy for approval. Michael, it is remarkable that the governor, we know Governor Hogan is popular. He continues to be very popular based on this poll. Only 14 percent disapprove of the job that he's doing. Tell me any politician in Washington right. that, that gets those kind of numbers. I mean, I mean it's, so it's he's, pretty he's, remarkable. He's at 66% approval rating, which is a stunning number. But for him, that's actually like a half step below. He flirts with 70% here and there. So that's always been unusual, but it's consistent for this governor in this state. Mm-hmm. But I, seriously, I was flabbergasted that, that a disapproval rating of only 14%. So... I just, I agree with you. I mean, people in politics, it's notoriously divisive and it sends people to their appropriate camps. Sure. And 40% seem to say the other side's completely wrong about everything. And the opposite 40% says the same thing about the, their opponents. And here you've got almost everybody in Maryland says, you know what, this governor, I'm, I'm not willing, I'm not willing to put a knife in that guy's back. You right. Know? A pox on all their houses except Larry Hogan. It's, it's, it's remarkable, <laughs> it is, and, and those yeah. numbers continue to be very high. And, Michael, finally, there's always a, a, a great question thrown in here, and this one is about, you know, perf- what, what kind of season do Marylanders prefer? <laughs> I agree with these results, but, but let's talk about that a little bit. So it just, I mean, there's a little bit of back and forth with Professor Cromer and some of her social media followers that led up to this. I think she's inclined to put a punchy question like this onto the poll every year, a couple things like this. So she wanted to, to tease out what, what seasons do people like, um, you know, big surprise. What do you think? Fall comes in? Fall is for me. Yeah, absolutely. You I, like the fall? I, I do You're like fall the fall. Guy? I do like is the it fall. because summers here are too warm for you? There's a lot of factors. I like the fall in general. I also like football. It's a great time for sports. Mm. But yeah, the weather, of course. And, you know, leading into the holiday season is always fun for me. So I don't like the winter. It's too cold. And the summer's too hot. Yeah, that works. But 44% of Marylanders say a plurality says that their favorite season is indeed fall. Mm. I'll take winter. Hmm. So you're 10%. You're the 10%er. Bring the session back in. I'm I'm a masochist. (laughs) <laughs> you know, so, so that is obviously for me. Yeah. Bring the session back. So we'll give you that. We'll give you that. So 10% of folks have winter as their favorite time of year. 21 prefer summer. Okay. So Michael, let's talk about revenue forecasting and let's open up the books here. All of this really does, you know, all roads lead to Kerwin. I mean, we talked about the poll. That's the big news there. And when we talk about revenues and why these are so important, this is how we pay for things like education. So if your revenues are down or if you have a bad forecast, that really affects what you're able to do fiscally in the years to come. Yeah. So what's what's our fiscal footing for whatever the priorities might be? And I mean, we're thinking about this in the context. We're sort of on the heels of maybe the most talked about session at the summer conference we held just a few weeks ago was – a group of financial people, including the state's lead economist right. with a couple of county budget managers. We did a session, you know, talking about is, are the counties facing a perfect storm financially? And part of the theory was, is there softness in the economy that might mean weakness in revenue structures? Is there, you know, is there possibly a looming problem with a structural deficit with the state? We know that that's sitting out there as well. Right. And then the possibility of taking on a new spending obligation. Where are we relative to that stuff? So this fits right, fits right into that. Um, every year in September, the state's 
you know, Bureau of Revenue Estimates, that, that board sits down with the professional staff and they sort out, you have to have an official number for what we forecast revenues to look like. Everybody needs to balance to that number. By September, you've closed the books on the fiscal year that ended on June 30th. Mm-hmm. So by September, you sort of have the data from last year and you want to update what your growth projections are. So that's what this happens every September. It's not necessarily a monumental big deal, but it's an opportunity to put things in more focus. Well, I mean, some people, so that the Bureau and the Board of Revenue Estimates did vote to write up the revenue projections for fiscal 20 by $130 million. And some people will look at that and just, you know, oh, happy toss days the are confetti. Here again, right? Right. Yeah, good news. Yeah, very good news. $130 million sounds like a lot of money, too. It does. Right? But, of course, it's a drop in the bucket when you're looking at a the state budget. 20, 19, $19, $20 billion you know, state budget, right? Right. So that's important. We'll get to that in a second. The board also set its first official revenue projections for fiscal 21 at $19.1 billion. That's a 1.9% increase over the current estimate for fiscal 20 revenues. So, Michael, we talked about writing up revenues, and that sounds like a great thing. But it's important to remember that while overall revenues are up, that is largely a projection of a strong tax year in 2018, and it's not necessarily indicative of any sort of long-term growth. Right. So, so the, the fiscal year we just wrapped up, fiscal 2019, once you close the books on that, you look at everything. And one of the things we noticed is there was a bump in income taxes from, from people doing one-time stuff, notably cashing out stocks in the stock market or real estate, places where they had capital gains. Mm-hmm. And one thing we know in the revenue forecasting business is a person who has a job this year that's the kind of stuff you can more or less safely predict that next year she's going to have a job again and probably will be earning comparable wages next year to this year. Right. But stuff that comes from, hey, I sold my business or I made a stock sale or I sold a hotel, you don't expect that person to have another hotel to sell next year for the same amount. You don't book that really in your base that you expect to carry forward. Right. Capital gains is the hardest to forecast because it just relies on human behavior and you don't really know what people are going to do when it comes to stuff like capital gains. Right. So, so basically not every, not every penny counts the same when you're looking backwards. And that's part of the mixed Mm -hmm. message in this forecast. So people who just read the headline, they're like, oh, you know, you know, $130 million to the good. That sounds great. We're writing up revenues. Things must be better than we thought. And the answer is kind of, yeah, but. Right. Yeah, but. <laughs> I mean, we, we know that there was a big tax bill in Congress that that definitely impacted folks with capital gains and how they reported their income and whether or not you took the standard deduction right. or you itemized your deduction. So we've talked about that before. We also know that there was a Supreme Court decision, South Dakota versus Wayfair, that allowed states to collect tax revenue from remote online sellers. And right. <clears throat> obviously, Michael, that also influenced these numbers. Yeah. And and everything is propped up sort of because of those two. And that, that's mostly what we're talking about here. That's why those numbers came in higher. So so if you're if you're listening as someone who who is interested in the state of the state budget, you know, is everything okay? Is this good news? Is this going to solve that structural deficit problem that we've been hearing about? I think the short answer is probably like a little bit. If we were coming into 
FY20 and thinking about building the FY21 budget come January through April mm-hmm, ahead, mm-hmm. then if the FY21 budget might have been looking at an eight or $900 million structural problem, maybe a hundred of that is gone. This helps. So instead of eight or nine, maybe it's seven or eight. But that's, that's the dimension that you ought to be thinking about. Um, it probably still is the kind of setting where the governor may have to make some tricky decisions on what he proposes in his budget plan, even just for the coming year, not just not not just as a multiple year thing, but just to make the FY21 budget work. And when the legislature sits down and the spending affordability committee comes up with its guidance on spending, frequently they look at the at the you know that structural deficit there very well may be some challenging things ahead for this budget year ahead. Yeah, and when we look at you know economic reports and indicators, we do see uh, slow wage growth and otherwise tepid sales for sales and use tax. And that's all important because that means revenue for the state, and that means that we can pay for more things and start to chip away at that structural problem. Right. So, I mean, talking revenues can get tedious, but the, as a practical matter, the health of the local economy, people having jobs and earning wages, and ultimately that means they pay income taxes, and then they feel liberty to do things like buy a house or buy a refrigerator, or buy a car, right. and those generate the revenues that we use to operate government. So you know, the, the functions of government are sort of dependent on the economy and the state feels it pretty quickly. Income tax and sales tax are by far number one and two in the, in, in what powers the state budget. Right. And both of those, they feel it pretty quickly if the economy starts to slow. County's a little less so because property tax is our number one and that's sort of you know, phased in and more gradual. Yeah. So I, I, a couple things. I know we can get really deep into the weeds. Uh, careful. Here. I, I, know, I mean, I, know. I mean, our listeners like that we're in the weeds, but like there's probably a limit to that. But what, you know, what, what do you pull out of this? So I think, number one, I mean, we see that the job mix of our labor market is certainly shifting. Lower wage industries are accounting for more of total employment and actually employment growth in our highest wage industry shrank in 2018. And that's Hmm. the information sector, federal government, finance services. We've actually seen all of those industries contract in terms of employment. Hmm. And then we also know that the baby boomer generation, they're retiring over the last several years. Again, that coincides with better home prices. The stock market was booming. Makes sense, right? Right. And what happens is those folks tend to be, you know, higher wage earners. They're more experienced. They're replaced by workers who are less experienced. And that means they're going to make less money, which means they're paying less in income tax Got it, and yeah. means less revenue for the state. So a couple interesting notes there as to why we're kind of looking at the economy and the overall outlook is down uh, when it comes to employment, wage, and sales and use tax revenues. So none of these are overwhelming effects. It's not like there's this gigantic torrent of baby boomers who are creating this immediate silver tsunami sort of thing. But, I mean, you go back to the core number, like the single most important number here is they're guessing that FY21 will grow 1.9% over their best guess for FY20. Right. So, like, if if there's a single number to focus on here in the forecast, it's 1.9%. And that is a pretty sluggish positive number. That's not a deep recession, but a healthy economy, you would probably see 
like gross domestic product, you know, overall grow by something like 3%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if cost of living is a percent and a half or two, you want to see it grow by a little bit more than that. So if we think that the overall revenue package is going to grow by 1.9%, that means, you know, a few more people showing up and getting jobs, but not much wage growth for the people who have them. And maybe we even lose a little bit of ground in things like capital gains and those add-ons. So that's perfect. Yeah, perfectly put. That's the number that you kind of want to circle there. That is not an ebullient, you know, joyous prediction. 1.9 is like, we're going to keep chugging along, but at a slow pace. Right. So Obviously, this all matters in terms of revenues. The Spending Affordability Committee, Michael, they are the ones who recommend what the state should be spending, what it can take on. They set spending limits. They recommend spending limits. So all of this data is taken into account there, and then they make their recommendations. The General Assembly considers them. So that's how all of this sort of ties in. Yeah, and just a few weeks before the first meeting of that body, and that is typically for fiscal people – sort of a turn the page, start looking ahead, and let's let's get all the green visors out there and they'll start doing their forecasts and crystal balls. We'll look at employment, we'll look at personal income and get a little more detail on this stuff. So a few weeks away, people like you will all be huddled around the Spending Affordability Committee over in the joint hearing room. It's, it's a big day. So you're saying we're going to be looking at those big spreadsheets? Oh, yeah. Okay, speaking of spreadsheets, after the break, we're going to get into the Kerwin Commission. Ooh, we can't, can't help ourselves. We can't help ourselves. All that and more after the break. The Local Government Insurance Trust is the primary source for Maryland local governments to get insurance coverage. When the private insurance market doesn't understand your needs and doesn't really want to be in the business of covering your law enforcement officers and other public employees, legit will be there. That is exactly why Legit was created over 30 years ago. Legit is different. Legit is owned and managed by its local government members. That means that when we do well, you do well. Members get premium credits when the trust has a good year. And Legit offers training and best practices year-round to make sure our members are doing their best with risk management. Competitive prices, outstanding service, and coverage that fits your needs as a local government. You can't beat legit for all your coverage needs. Find out more at lgit.org or drop by their exhibit space at the MML or MAKO conference. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canelli back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, there was big news out of the Kerwin Commission's formula funding work group last week. You were on assignment. You were out last week, so, you know, we need to talk about it. I'm sure folks were wondering, why haven't we talked about this yet? But let's sort of break this down. Let's talk about, you know, sort of the process, what happened uh, last week, and then also the substance of what lies ahead for this funding formula work group and the Kerwin Commission as a whole. So so leading up to this last meeting, the the twist was we were expecting this to be a big complicated work session. At one point it had been scheduled from 10 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. So with a, with a break for lunch, but that's at least like five or six hours of actual face-to-face meeting, dialogue, discussion. Right. And they had had meetings like that. So on the original schedule, this had been an all-day meeting. As of a couple of weeks ago, it got abridged to be a 10 to 12.30 meeting. So we figured, okay, it's going to be a half day sort of thing. And they had done that the week before. Then we 
kind of got thrown for a loop when the day before the meeting, they published their own schedule and it was going to be done at 1130. So just 90 minutes and then mention at you know on the agenda that they were going to go into an executive session. Okay. So the idea was that the members were going to meet for lunch and have some continued conversations. Okay, so let's break that down a little bit. Executive session, Michael, that essentially means a closed door session, right? Right. So I mean, this is this is a debate. This is a so basically a public conversation about whether to keep talking behind closed doors. Right. And like to frame this understand this is a sensitive decision for a body that's doing public work, right? So, I mean, we're, we're the local government outfit and our members are county commissioners and county councils. They sit on what are defined as public bodies. They're created by state laws and statutes and so forth. And Maryland, like most places, we have a series of sunshine laws that say that basically say, you know, public information and public decision making ought to be out in the open and available to the people affected by it. Right. And those laws say you have to publish, you know, you have to let people know when you're going to meet. You have to open up the doors and let them come in. Maybe you broadcast the meeting live. You record meeting minutes. There are rules for public bodies that hold public meetings. So if you're a public body and there's a, I mean, there is a legal definition of what is a public body. So if you're the county commissioners in Washington County, you are without a doubt a public body and you need to follow these rules. So you let everybody know we're going to be meeting on Tuesday morning at 1030 and here's the place. Mm -hmm. And this is the agenda. And these are the things that we're going to be discussing and so forth. And you have processes to take minutes and make things available and so forth. So anyway, you start with the presumption that decision-making is out in the open. And this applies to public bodies, not just elected, but also if you're the soil conservation district for Washington County, Mm -hmm. you were probably created by law of Washington County and those positions are formally appointed. So as a practical matter, that's a public body too. And it needs to go through similar sorts of things. They may not put an ad in the paper, but they have to make a public notice that they're going to have their meetings and so on and so forth. Now the definition of public body though does not necessarily apply to everybody who meets to talk about things that are in the public interest. Right. So the actual Kerwin Commission, the Commission on Innovation and Excellence in Education, is a public body. Yeah, created by a state law. They passed legislation through the General Assembly to assemble that body. Here are the people who are going to be on it, how they're appointed, what their terms are, and so forth. All that's written in state law. So no doubt that the Kerwin Commission itself is a public body. It has to have public meetings and so forth. Okay. But what we've been doing lately is they've paused and the work that we've been following, we've been calling it Kerwin and it's chaired by Britt Kerwin. But the group that has been meeting lately is actually the formula funding work group created as an ad hoc entity just to basically inform and guide the work of the Kerwin Commission that's going to start again later in the fall. And that's important because when we talk about public bodies, Michael, as this meeting was winding up, And as we got to that agenda item of going into executive session, Dr. Kerwin said, "Okay, it's time we're going to move to executive session, but we need a motion in a second. And and 
That means that you are following the protocols that are laid out. If you're a public body and you want to go to public session, there are rules you have to follow. There are a specific set of circumstances that would allow you to go into closed session. So getting a motion in a second, you are following the rules for, okay, we want to go into closed session, but we need to check these boxes. Here's the checklist. First things first, we need a motion and a second to do it. Right. So this isn't obvious, but it does make sense that if you are a public body, the law says there are circumstances where you may need to talk about something that is private. Understandable. So if you're the Dorchester County Council and you're talking about employee discipline or settling a lawsuit or strategy on something like that, Mm -hmm. then that conversation you ought to be able to have collectively, but without the reporter in the room who would be able to betray, well, you know, they've decided they'd be willing to settle for $200,000, but they're only going to offer $50,000. And once you put that in the in the newspaper, you've lost the ability to have that be your tactic. You're cooked, right? So, so the the, the open meetings law, I think, properly says, okay, when you're going to have that kind of thing, you're going to have a, a special function like an executive function. Then the body can say, we we're going to close the open session. We're going to go into a closed door session. We're going to talk about these specific things. And then when we reconvene an open session, we will provide a summary of the things we discussed. Not necessarily every word that was said, but we will say we talked about our strategy in the settlement of this lawsuit or whatever. Right. So the idea is the public knows the gist, but you don't need to reveal the details. Right. So They got the motion, they got the second, and Secretary Brinkley, Secretary David Brinkley, Secretary of Budget Management, who sits on this work group and on the Kerwin Commission, chimed in and said, wait a minute, I don't think that any of the definitions that are defined in statute, I don't think we meet any of these definitions that would allow us or cause us to have to go into closed session. Yeah, this isn't sensitive personnel matter. This isn't a legal settlement. You go through this list of things that are iterated right in the state And he law. had it right in front of yeah, him. Yeah, and he says, this isn't any of these things, so I don't understand why we're calling this an executive session. Right. And and, and then the question came up, well, is it is it – is it legal for this body to do this? And they got even a little deeper in morass when the chair Kerwin and the staff to the commit to the work group basically said, well, we have informal advice, not an actual letter, not a piece of paper we can hand you, but we have informal advice from the office of the attorney general that it's okay for our body to do this because we are not a public body. Well, they didn't. I don't think they got that far in the meeting itself. This happens later, later in the day when they got the yeah, formal letter. Yeah, the, 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 an actual you know letter of advice from the office of the attorney general said this work group is not constituted in any of the various ways that would make it subject to the Open Meetings Act. So it's not technically a public body. They can do whatever they want. Right. Which then made it like it sort of begs the question, well, why did you go through the the hoops that were that apply to a true public body if the conclusion is this isn't a public body? Yeah. If you knew in advance, ask for a vote. If you knew in advance that the attorney general does not consider this to be a quote unquote public body as defined in statute. Why get the motion? Why get the second? And then why make everybody take a tough vote? Because on Twitter and in the media, people were naming names. Right. Yeah. And saying, who voted for who voted it? For yeah. That? Who, who are, yeah. And so, I mean, so, I mean, so, so setting aside, I mean, you and I, and, and, you know, we can, we can get a little lost in, in the machinations of public, you know, pub, the open meetings act right. and so forth. But 
the, the reality here is this can kind of look bad, right? Your body says we're going to close the doors. And in talking about doing that, they made mention of, well, we're going to be talking about formulas and numbers and options, many of which will never really happen. And, and the public would probably get confused or it would be misleading. It would be, it would be deleterious if people were able to see these unformed products. And that's just pouring fuel onto the fire. Right. And, and, I mean, in all fairness, it just it makes it sound somewhat disrespectful, mm-hmm. and you. And I don't think they meant it to be. I, I, don't, that I don't. I don't think that was the goal. Obviously, the goal is not to be disrespectful, but but as a practical matter, you know that there are people who are skeptical of the work and the work product that they anticipate here. And especially because, I mean, we've been waiting three years for this, right? Everybody is anticipating this work group's going to come up with these formulas that everyone has been waiting for for three years now. And now you're going to, you say, we're going to go into a closed session. I think Dr. Alvin Thornton asked, well, is there any precedent here? Has the Kerwin Commission ever gone into closed session? And the answer was no. So I think he was sort of getting at, I don't think we need to do this behind closed doors. I think we can do this out in the open. We've done everything else that way. But, of course, the argument is we don't want people to get confused. We're going to be putting formulas into a model that's going to spit out numbers. And you and I know, I think we can sympathize to once a document gets onto the Internet, it's there forever. Sure. And people think that's the number. Well, I mean, I mean. Case in point, exactly. the $2.9 billion figure that half of the Kerwin universe is still running around with as their rallying point is a completely obsolete, off-the-table, no-longer-relevant figure from a study that has been completely supplanted by incremental work of this group and their consultants. Exactly. But by virtue of the fact that no new number has taken its place, people still default to, well, $2.9 billion. We We know we're shorting schools by two. Point nine billion because I've got this table that says so. That's very, very outdated and old. Right. And Michael, I mean, you know, this whole question of why go through this process only to declare that you're not a public body. I mean, it seems like sometimes this group cannot get out of its own way. I mean, they're doing very, very important work. We know they're working very hard, but this is just puzzling. Yeah, I mean, yeah, whatever your thoughts about the, what, what they're going to recommend, right. whether you think this is a great idea or not, um, you the whole process doesn't need the extra sideshow. And that's what we got a week of. So social media has been littered with people talking about backroom deals and, you know, talking about, well, who's raising money to do this and so forth. So, I mean, this, this has taken on its own life and it's, it's unfortunate. So anyway, so, I mean, talking about both substance and process, Part of it has been now there's there's a debate about the process as well as a debate about the actual debate. Exactly. And that's that doesn't help things. But to be fair, Michael, I know the initial reaction from a lot of people was they're back there talking about how to pay for it. Right. And when you think when some people think about how to pay for it, they think that. Behind those doors, they're talking about what taxes need to be raised and, you know, we're going to do this to the sales tax. We're going to do this to the income tax. But to be right. fair, that's not necessarily – it's not what they're talking about, it, right? It's not at all right. what they're talking about. And right. and if, if we do nothing else, we should do our best to try and set that straight. Yes. So if, if you've come to this podcast trying to learn more about what's going on with the Kerwin Commission, if nothing else, understand that the Kerwin Commission – 
is not going to recommend anything with revenues. That's not their job. So this is not their job. They were not asked to. It's not that they're shirking their responsibility or they're dodging this. What their job is to do is to make recommendations on what the next phase of Maryland's commitment to education ought to look like and how it ought to be done and what things should be focused on and where you should be spending money and how you change our funding formulas to reflect all of that. And perhaps the most politically sensitive and sensitive in general portion of that is state and local cost shares and how you you split up these costs among the 24 jurisdictions, how much the state is going to pick up and how much you're going right. to ask the counties to pay. Right. So two giant questions. And I mean, you know, for forgive us because we're both grinding our teeth over this. Uh, this group started its meetings in September of 2016. That means it was the fall of 16 and they took a break for the 17 session all through the 2017 summer and into that fall. That was the year we realized, OK, they're not going to be done. It was the fall of 2017 that on our podcast we were making the call. They're not going to be done in time for a bill in the 2018 session. Seems like yes. We were the first ones to put a pin in that. Right. And it turns out we're now looking at the 2020 session to have this real conversation. But two fundamental questions we've been waiting and waiting and waiting for. And that is, okay, how much of this is state and how much of this is local? And then how does this get spread across jurisdictions, particularly differently from the way things are done today? Right. And, and those are questions one and two that everybody wants to know. And, and when this funding work group has had these clever conversations about people saying, well, sure, I want to see the numbers before I tell you whether I think everything's a good idea. That's what they're talking about. They want to know what's this going to mean to the schools in this jurisdiction? What is it going to mean to the taxpayers in that jurisdiction? I mean, that's exactly what everybody is waiting for. And we're still waiting. And, you know, I think it's important to, to, to point out, I mean, we've been talking about $4 billion, $4 billion. People are so used to hearing that figure. I think it's hard to digest until you see what the actual number means for your jurisdiction. And then you start to look at, well, what are we going to have to do to raise that revenue? And what services may we have to cut? Right. That's why it's so important to get these numbers and to see that spreadsheet of how this affects each individual jurisdiction. Because you can talk about $4 billion all day. But until you see the actual number for your jurisdiction, that's when you can really start to understand what it means. Yeah, I think so. So so we know that that's what's supposed to be coming. Um, it was a little surprising to see this last meeting of the funding work group get abridged the way that it was. OK, fine. You know, we can live with that. Um, so so now where are we? OK, let's see. Um, they're going to have another meeting uh, later this week, where mm-hmm. you know, for the, to, for for clarity's sake, we're recording on Wednesday, the twenty fifth, and we anticipate a meeting tomorrow is going to be a breakout of you know, they're going to advance from where they were. All all they've really gotten to is we'd have a new number for what the foundation formula ought to look like. They got a little more detail on retirement costs, but not, I mean, basically that's not going to change the numbers much. So you're saying we're not going to see local, that number we were talking about earlier, what it means for each jurisdiction. Most likely we're not going to see that this week. We thought September 26th was going to be the circle, the date day. Well, initially that was the final decision. 
That was meeting. originally final decision. They've since extended their schedule. They now have scheduled a meeting on October 8th. And now that is circle the date day. The 26th looks like it's going to be, let's add some flesh to the bones that we've created for what the new state funding formula will look like. We have a new foundation amount based on the assumptions we've already baked into the cake. The commission has told us what they want to do. Mm-hmm. We've kind of costed those things out. And that means that adequate funding for a school per pupil is going to be this. Now we can build the add-on stuff for compensatory education and and the other add-on components. So I think we're going to see that unraveled and unveiled on the 26th. And then it's going to be on October 8th is going to be the day where they pull things together. But I don't think we're going to see tomorrow the details on what does the county contribution look like. I don't think they're ready. I agree with you. And remember, as we always say, this work group makes its recommendations to the full Kerwin Commission, who then has to accept or send back, you know, reject the recommendations and come up with some new formula. I doubt that happens. But they still have to look at these and say yay or nay. And then that will turn in presumably to legislation during the 2020 right. session. So so back to this issue of recommendations on how to pay for it. Um, what when, when this work group is talking about how to pay for it, what they mean is which dollars come from the state, which dollars come from the counties, and how do they get, get distributed across the counties. Right. So that's what this formula work group is spending its time on. Not revenues. If, if what you want to know is, I want to hear the other shoe fall. Are we raising taxes? Are we cutting programs? How are we going to be able to afford this? Then it's not this group. It's not the Kerwin Commission that's going to meet till the end of this calendar year. That's the debate for the General Assembly. Right. They're going to get a bill on committing to these goals in education and how to spend the money to do it. And then that begs the question, how do you provide the resources for that? Is it through revenue enhancements? Is you change the tax structure? Do you think you can accommodate it just out of whatever growth we anticipate through, you know, through the ordinary budget cycle? Right. So more to come, obviously. Definitely more to come. And I mean, maybe we do an emergency podcast on Friday if it turns out Thursday is the big day and right. they really drop bombshells. But I think more likely we're back here next week in the in the interstitial window between these last two meetings, basically say they finally put the ball on the tee and on October 8th is the day they're finally going to run at it and kick it. The big day. Yeah. The big day. We've been saying that for a long time, but I think you're right. I think it October has, 8th, to, it be, has right, to be, right. right? We're getting down to the point where it has to be, but we'll put a pin in that for now. And uh, we will hold that emergency podcast if we get those numbers this week. But I think the safe money is October 8th. Sounds about right to me. All right. We'll leave it there for today. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe. That way, every episode will be sent to you automatically. Tell your friends. Tell your colleagues. It really helps to get our message out. You can also follow us on Twitter. We have a new Facebook page as well. We post a lot of information there. But for Michael Sanderson, this is Kevin Canale signing off. And we will talk to you soon.